Good afternoon, everyone. Hello. My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thanks also to our conference staff here at Cato who uh, help us to run these events and do such a wonderful job. Uh, welcome to those of you watching online at www.cato.org. Um, I should remind myself and all of you to uh, turn off your phones or silence them if you refuse to uh, turn them off, but uh, mine is, in fact, off. Um, okay, so um, liberal democracies such as the United States face an acute dilemma in the conduct of foreign relations. American national interests sometimes require cooperation with repressive, corrupt, or otherwise odious regimes, but close working relationships with autocratic regimes should not be undertaken lightly. Such partnerships risk compromising or even making a mockery of American values of democratic governance, civil liberties, and free markets. In this new book, Perilous Partners, The Benefits and Pitfalls of America's Alliances with Authoritarian Regimes, complete with my own little flags in there, um, our guests today, Cato Institute Senior Fellow Ted Galen Carpenter and Cato Edging Scholar Malou Innocent, contend that U.S. officials have amassed a less than stellar record of grappling with the ethical dilemmas associated with our uh, perilous partners or our alliances with our perilous partners. The book explores this problem through a series of questions. When are alliances with friendly dictators necessary? Friendly dictators, by the way, is in quotes, friendly dictators. Uh, when are alliances with friendly dictators necessary for America's security? When are such alliances a gratuitous betrayal of fundamental American values? And when is the situation a close call? I'm very welcome to, uh, very pleased to welcome uh, Malou and Ted here today. It's, uh, it's really a, every book forum is really a celebration of the launch of the book. It's been out just for a couple weeks, but also to welcome them here to talk about the book. So let me introduce them in the order that they're going to speak. I think, Malou, you're going to go first, right? So Malou Innocent is an adjunct scholar here at Cato. She was a foreign policy analyst here from 2007 to 2013, and her primary research interests during that time included Middle East and Persian Gulf security issues and U.S. policy towards Pakistan, Afghanistan, and China. She's appeared on many media outlets, including CNN, BBC News, Fox News Channel, and Voice of America, and has published articles on national security and international affairs in many different outlets, both here uh, in the United States. Hey, Jacob, how are you doing? Uh, here in the United States uh, and overseas, including Survival, Congressional Quarterly, Foreign Policy, Wall Street Journal, Asia, many others. Malou earned a dual bachelor degree uh, uh, in mass communications and political science at the University of California at Berkeley and a Master of Arts degree in international relations from the University of Chicago. She now lives in Philadelphia. Our second speaker today, uh, the co-author of the book, is Ted Galen Carpenter, Senior Fellow for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Ted served as Cato's Director of Foreign Policy Studies from 1986 to 1995 and preceded me as Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies from 1995 to 2011. He's the author of 10 other books and the editor of another 10. Uh, including some of my personal favorites, such as uh, The Fire Next Door, Mexico's Drug Violence and the Danger to America, A Search for Enemies, America's Alliances After the Cold War, and Smart Power Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America. Ted is contributing editor to the National Interest and serves on the editorial boards of Mediterranean Quarterly and the Journal of Strategic Studies and is the author of more than 600 articles and policy studies. 
They have appeared in all of the major publications you can imagine, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, and many others. He's a frequent guest on radio and television programs in the United States and around the world. He received his PhD in U.S. diplomatic history from the University of Texas. And with that, Malou. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. Chris was a very patient editor. That is something he omitted from his introduction. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you so much to Jacob and Andrew for being here and for offering comments on the book. Um, I'm going to begin very quickly and just talk about the book itself and how it's organized. In August, CIA Director John Brennan walked back a previous claim that US intelligence agents never work with human rights abusers. Brennan said, and I'm paraphrasing, we strive to avoid working with individuals who abuse human rights. But in some cases, we do because of the vital and critical intelligence those services provide. Director Brennan's comments send two important messages, both of which Ted and I examine in the book Perilous Partners. The first is that US officials are concerned with their connection to human rights abuses. Number two, working with human rights abusers is unavoidable in statecraft. Ted will discuss the second point about why it's unavoidable to work with human rights abusers in statecraft and sort of outline the very general uh, policy recommendations that we provide in the book. What I want to explore with you is the first point, that US officials and many Americans for that matter are concerned with our connection to abuses of human rights. And my basic schema is broken down into three parts. The first is hypocrisy. It's a charge we often hear in discussions about US foreign policy. And it's because we see an inconsistency in our, in our values and, our, and then in our actions. The second is the humanitarian reasons. When we sacrifice our fundamental values, we see that it comes at enormous humanitarian costs. And as well, it can retard the development of foreign civil societies. And third is counterproductive in the sense that our alliances with authoritarian regimes, just like other client regimes, can sometimes pull the United States into conflicts divorced from its vital interests. So the first point about the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of US foreign policy. There is a profound disconnect between our professed ideals, the ideals that we revere and pay deference to and we claim make us exceptional, including individual rights, peace, democracy, and the rule of law, and then our underlying behaviors that manifest as policy be that destabilizing and overthrowing foreign governments, providing financial and military assistance to corrupt and brutal dictators, or underwriting the crimes of monstrous regimes. But what do people really mean when they say hypocrisy? When you say hypocrisy, it means that the United States claims to have a certain set of values and beliefs and doesn't adhere to them in their actions. I think the criticism really is one of a double standard in a sense that we see an inconsistent application of a certain set of principles for similar situations. And one example of that would be during the Arab Spring. And two examples of that would be Libya and Egypt. As we saw with Libya, the United States condemned Muammar Gaddafi's crackdown and pro-democracy demonstrators, and even premised the 2011 humanitarian intervention on basically humanitarian grounds in saying that Washington would not stand for brutal dictators suppressing and violently suppressing pro-democracy advocates. Meanwhile, next door in Egypt, we see that even though Hosni Mubarak's 30-year reign of authoritarianism fell, Washington still was offering very tepid criticisms of Cairo's crackdown on both pro-Morsi demonstrators and pro-democracy demonstrators. And that's because since 1978, Egypt has received over $60 billion in US military and financial assistance, over half of that to the purchase of US manufactured weapons and arms. But then also, the United States also considers Egypt an anchor of stability in the Middle East, because it was successfully pulled out of the pan-Arab struggle against Israel. 
Of course, it's an odd construction in some respects because Egypt would have the most to lose in any future conflict with Israel. Moreover, the current LCC regime, similar to its predecessors, Hosni Mubarak and Anwar Sadat, would, would uh, of course, uh, through the denial of, of free speech, it, it realizes that it can ignore the conditions on aid because they know that U.S. officials will not revoke U.S. assistance. This is a problem of the sort of patron-client ties that we have. And we notice that USAID, unfortunately, underwrites a regime that perpetuates its power through the denial of free speech, arbitrary imprisonment, and other forms of savage repression. So that we see the different standards and apply to one situation and to others. And there are many examples of this, both during the Arab Spring and during the Cold War. And certainly this double standard charge or this hypocrisy charge can damage our credibility and delegitimize our allies. And even though it's very powerful, it's persuasive, and it's a valid argument to have, it doesn't go far enough in providing an argument for opposing US alliances with authoritarian states. And this leads to my second point, in the sense that we see that when we do harm our values, it doesn't happen in just merely an abstract or philosophical sense, but in truly tangible and heinous ways. When we claim that our values are universal because they apply equally to everyone, irrespective of background, and yet at the same time, we overthrow governments, we provide a prop to the course of institutions of foreign governments, we assert for foreign people their agency and their self-determination, and it undermines their ability to find out how best to achieve their potential, and it prevents them from asserting meaningful change over their own political systems. One example of this is in Guatemala, similar to Syria, Cuba, Iran, and Congo, and other nationalist independence movements during the Cold War that the United States tried to undermine. In 1954, the United States helped overthrow the democratically elected government in uh, uh, President Arbenz. The agrarian land reform that he, that he imposed nationalized over a million acres of land, and he gave it to peasants. Of course, most of that land belonged to a giant US corporation called United Fruit Company. And the United States Army, the United States helped the uh, Guatemalan military replace Arbenz with a pro-American puppet that overturned the program. The coup was called Operation Success, and it led to three decades of military rule that slaughtered peasants, tortured regime critics, and burned insurgents alive. At least 200,000 Guatemalans perished after Operation Success. Another example, moving from Central America to South Asia, is Bangladesh. West Pakistan's US-backed military junta maintained the power of ethnic Punjabis in West Pakistan. And what they did is that they ignored and failed to address the underlying socioeconomic grievances of the ethnic Bengalis in East Pakistan. And what became known as the 1971 Bangladesh crisis, West Pakistan used US tanks and planes to suppress Bengali separatists. Journalists estimated that more than 1 million Bengalis were slaughtered in this crisis, and that's the low end estimate. US officials in India and in Dhaka, in West Pakistan's capital, described West Pakistan's actions as a selective genocide. Henry Kissinger, the national security advisor under President Richard Nixon, later, in acknowledge, later acknowledged in his memoirs about the Bangladesh crisis, quote, there was some merit to the charge of moral insensitivity, unquote. Now, beyond charges first of hypocrisy and, of course, of the humanitarian cost of policy, there's also another problem of backing tyrants. And this is, of course, the, an issue when it comes to backing any sort of client regime, is that it often pulls the United States into foreign conflicts divorced from its vital interests and security. And two examples illustrate this point. The first is Vietnam. Of course, the argument for intervening in Indochina was the domino theory, the notion that the rise of a nationalist independent movement in, in Saigon would lead to a demonstration effect across the region and strengthen communism both in Southeast Asia and encourage communists to strike elsewhere. In 1963, 
With Washington's encouragement, the South Vietnamese military overthrew and executed President Diem. Political chaos ensued in Saigon, and Washington Americanized the war. More than half a million U.S. troops would fight in Vietnam, more than 58,000 would perish, and it led to bitter disagreements that tore our own society apart. The second example, moving from Southeast Asia to the Arabian Peninsula, is Saudi Arabia. In August 1990, Saudi Arabia remained militarily too weak to defend itself when Iraqi troops invaded Kuwait. As a result, the United States marshaled an international coalition with broad Arab support to oust the Iraqis from Kuwait. But as former Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz said of the 12-year U.S. troop presence in Saudi Arabia, quote, it's been a huge recruiting device for al-Qaeda. In fact, if you look at bin Laden, one of his principal grievances was the presence of so-called crusader forces on the Holy Land, Mecca and Medina, unquote. What Wolfowitz was getting at is that Muslims took umbrage with the stationing of U.S. troops on Muslim holy soil. And also, bin Laden actually exploited the fact that Washington supported what he called, quote, apostate regimes in Riyadh, Cairo, Amman, Islamabad, and elsewhere. We must remember that Saudi Arabia bans free speech, political parties, and competitive elections. It has very austere social restrictions on religious freedom and women's rights. And it has a barbaric penal system of public floggings, beheadings, and crucifixions. An added problem of the 1990-1991 Persian Gulf War is, again, the idea that we violate our own principles. Again, the double standard charge comes up again. In the sense that the United States claimed that Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was both illegal and a violation of international law. Now, fast forward to 2003, the United States invades Iraq, overthrows Saddam Hussein, and does so without UN approval again exposing a double standard and how we push other countries around. Let me conclude my remarks by tying these historical examples together. Number one, the hypocrisy or double standard charge, one that we often hear in discussions of US foreign policy, and one that's, I think, very powerful and very persuasive because we do see an undermining of our credibility and a delegitimizing of our allies and the legitimacy of our allies, especially in the eyes of their own people. But still, as some would argue, and I'm sure many in this room, it still does not go far enough in providing an argument for opposing relationships with authoritarian regimes. That leads to the second argument. How our values become sacrificed at enormous humanitarian cost and retards the development of foreign civil societies. And third, these relationships, like many other client relationships, have the potential to pull the United States into foreign conflicts divorced from its security. I will conclude with just two quick takeaways in the course of researching and writing uh, the book. And the first is something that I think many of you would agree in that, you know, our values do resonate abroad. Our very liberal principles, Western principles of democracy and rule of law and human rights and women's rights, but they often carry a local flavor. For instance, you always hear about China, you know, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. I think the same is true in many parts of the Muslim world, where you find many, many individuals who like elements of Western liberal democracy but they also like Sharia law. So it's, it's that conflict. It's what these, these ideas exist in tension with one another. And oftentimes what you find is these universal values become entwined with local customs. The second takeaway is that our values genuinely and truly inspire foreign people. They really do animate their ideas of what they hope to achieve. And it becomes a guiding principle in some respects because our values remain aspirational. Meanwhile, at the same time, Many foreign citizens harbor a corrosive cynicism toward the United States and its policies. And that cynicism can become the prevailing mentality. What I found in the course of my research, especially doing a lot of field work in Afghanistan and Pakistan, you talk with people who were you know, passive supporters of militant groups, 
yet they also supported the separation of powers and the rule of law. So I think these ideas exist, they coexist in seeming contradiction. And when, what I've noticed is that when we pay deference to our values and then we breach them through our behavior, it can reduce the likelihood that foreign people will reconcile their own values favorably with our own. Thank you. Well, thank you, Malou. That, uh, I think, was a tremendous overview of uh, the arguments that we make in the book. And I think Chris put his finger on the, the central dilemma for a liberal democracy, that there are times when it may be necessary to compromise fundamental values to meet dire security threats. Perhaps the best example we have of that comes from the World War II period when Britain was facing a, a tremendous threat from Nazi Germany. And when Hitler unwisely uh, decided to invade the Soviet Union, Winston Churchill responded uh, immediately wanting an alliance with Joseph Stalin, one of the great butchers of the 20th century. And he received some static for this, but he met that criticism head on. He said, look, if Hitler invaded hell, I would have a good word to say about the devil on the floor of the House of Commons. And I think that's an important point. If a threat is dire enough, if vital interests truly are imperiled, and in that case, Britain faced uh, a threat to its very existence as an independent country, then one cannot be choosy about potential allies. You basically have to take any ally that is available that can contribute to your country's security. But the argument we make in Perilous Partners is that US leaders have been far too casual about compromising values to meet far milder threats. It is one thing when one's existence as a nation is at stake. It is something else when the standard that is used to create alliances with odious regimes is one of convenience. And all too often, that was the standard. That is the standard for US foreign policy. We cite a number of examples of this in the book. One of uh, my favorites was our relationship with a series of South Korean dictators. And this policy persisted even when South Korea had emerged as a modern country with a vibrant economy. For example, in uh, 1980, after uh, longtime dictator Park Chung-hee had been overthrown, there was an interim civilian government in South Korea. And then another general, Chun Doo-hwan, overthrew that democratic government. The response of the U.S. commander of military forces in South Korea was one that this was a really a necessary action. As he put it, 
the Koreans are like lemmings. They need a strong leader. What that meant was the United States preferred to deal with a reliable, friendly dictator as opposed to the uncertainty of a messy and perhaps even left-leaning democracy in South Korea. And that, unfortunately, is the kind of standard that the United States has used far too often. Well, when we decide whether a, an alliance with an authoritarian government is necessary, what standards should we apply? And there are three standards that are particularly important. First, what is the nature of the U.S. interest at stake? And our leaders have had a nasty habit in recent decades of defining everything as a vital American interest. But vital interests are actually rather rare. We're talking about a set of interests that have direct applicability to the independence and freedom of the United States. When we look at interests in the world, there are several different categories. Vital interests, of course, being the most important. Beyond that, secondary or conditional interests. A third category, peripheral interests. And then the final category, matters that are not particularly relevant to the United States at all. Vital interests, as I said, are quite rare. The United States is without a doubt the most secure great power in history. Not only do we have geographic advantages, namely two oceanic moats and friendly and rather weak neighbors in our own hemisphere, those factors combined with the extraordinary uh, military capabilities, the conventional military capabilities that we have, make a large-scale conventional attack on the United States highly improbable. Add to that a nuclear deterrent of several thousand weapons, and the idea of a direct assault on the United States is a relatively remote danger. What about secondary interests? Here you deal with things such as uh, a major disruption in the global balance of power. A secondary interest, I would argue, would be, for example, preventing China from becoming the utterly dominant power in East Asia. That's not a vital interest of the United States. We can still survive quite nicely, even if China became East Asia's hegemon, but we would certainly prefer a different situation. The third category, peripheral interests. Uh, something like the onset of a hostile government in a mid-size country in our own hemisphere. Venezuela comes to mind, where we do have, indeed, a hostile government in charge of a mid-size country. And then the fourth category, largely irrelevant matters, 
Frankly, whether East Timor is well-governed or not might be important to the people of East Timor. It should not matter a whit to the United States. Or if we want to take a more pertinent example today, frankly, whether Ukraine or Russia has sovereignty over the Crimean Peninsula is not really a relevant issue to the United States. When we deal with those different categories of interests, it is necessary to make compromises of values when vital interests are at stake. It is utterly inappropriate to make such compromises when only peripheral interests, much less largely irrelevant matters, are at stake. And the toughest call is that second category of secondary or conditional interests. There, some important judgments are required. But again, I think we need a compelling case that secondary interests are, justified, are, are jeopardized before we consider compromising our values. The second standard is how severe is the threat to our interests? Now, this is true when you're dealing especially with vital interests and secondary interests. What we've had, unfortunately, is threat inflation with U.S. foreign policy. It seems like every adversary that gets crosswise with the United States is the next Hitler. In fact, I've suggested that some of the interventionists form a Hitler of the Month Club. <laughs> but you've seen this. I mean, Ho Chi Minh from North Vietnam was the next Hitler in the 1960s. Um, Saddam Hussein, of course, was the long-standing next Hitler from the first Persian Gulf War when he ceased to be a reliable ally of the United States, a, a different period in the 1980s, uh, to his eventual overthrow in 2003. Uh, Serbia's Slobodan Milosevic was the next Hitler in the 1990s. And of course, today we have two new Hitlers, both Bashar al-Assad, Syria's dictator, and of course, the favorite candidate for the new Hitler award, Vladimir Putin. But the reality is most adversaries are not Hitlers. Hitler was uniquely menacing because not only was he irredeemably evil, but he had control of one of the great powers in the international system. That happens very rarely, that you get both elements, unadulterated evil and control of a great power. We are not facing that situation today, and we're not likely to in the foreseeable future. The final standard is how bad is the prospective ally? Are we dealing with just a garden-variety corrupt tyrant, or are we dealing with a murderous sociopath? That makes a difference. And obviously, the standard needs to be much higher if we're dealing with somebody who enjoys not only imprisoning political opponents, but slaughtering them. 
A related point is we need to be candid with the American people about the nature of a prospective ally. And there again, our leaders have fallen short of that requirement. They have portrayed thuggish tyrants as noble members of the free world. And that is an insult to the entire concept of freedom and the entire concept of democracy. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of the kind of attitude we should not have in dealing with prospective authoritarian allies. One comes from a man who purported to make moral principles an important feature of U.S. foreign policy, President Jimmy Carter. This comes from a quote during his visit to Iran on New Year's Eve, 1977. In his toast to the Shah, Carter says, and I quote, Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled regions of the world. This is a great tribute to you, your majesty, and to your leadership, and to the respect and admiration and love which your people give to you. Now, Carter went on to say that we have no other nation on earth, other than Iran, that is closer to us in planning for our mutual security. Okay, so that's at least outlining a pragmatic relationship. But he goes on. He said the cause of human rights is one that is also shared deeply by our people and by the leaders of our two nations. Now, by this time, human rights organizations had amply documented the massive abuses committed by the Shah's regime. And talk about missing signals. Now, this is barely 14 months before the Islamic Revolution overthrows the Shah. And yet Carter is going on about how the Iranian people not only respect the Shah, but love him. This identifies the United States with a brutal, corrupt, tyrannical government. And then we wondered why, after the revolution, you had a million people in the streets of Tehran demonstrating and shouting death to America. That resentment had built up over a quarter of a century, and it exploded. To show you that this is not a folly of, of democratic political leaders, we have a quote from then-Vice President George H.W. Bush during a visit to Manila. Now, the leader of the Philippines at this point, Ferdinand Marcos, is again one of America's valued allies. This is the man who extinguished Philippines democracy by proclaiming martial law in 1972 and having undermined the democracy for years before that, then proceeded to loot that country to the tune of several billion dollars. Meanwhile, U.S. aid flowed generously and I said that uh, the only real beneficiaries of U.S. aid to the Philippines was the international shoe industry, given Imelda Marcos's collection of several thousand shoes. 
But Bush, in his visit to Manila, says, we stand with you, sir, referring to Marcos. We love your adherence to democratic principle and to the democratic processes. Now again, is he delusional or deceitful? It's one or the other. Because the record is perfectly clear, Ferdinand Marcos is a corrupt dictator. Nothing more than that. Now, fortunately, in the Philippines, we didn't get the blowback that we got in Iran when Marcos is finally removed from power. But this leaves a bad taste in the mouths of peoples in other countries when we not only back brutal, corrupt tyrants, but we portray them as something other than what they are. In our book, we outline a doctrine that we call ethical pragmatism. It acknowledges there are times when moral values have to be compromised because of vital security needs. But that needs to be the great exception to U.S. foreign policy, not the rule. And unfortunately, over the past half century, it has largely become the rule. That needs to change. Unfortunately, there are few signs that we have learned any appropriate lessons from our dismal history of backing friendly tyrants. You want an example of that? How about the relationship that we have with the new Egyptian dictator, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi? When the Egyptian military, which Sisi commanded, overthrew elected President Mohamed Morsi, the United States government would not even call it a coup. Now, I don't know what one calls it when the military of a country overthrows an elected government. But when I went to school, that was called a military coup. But to acknowledge that would have required the United States to terminate all aid. Egypt, and we were not willing to do that. And in fact, with a barely decent interval, aid has continued to flow, including generous military aid. Meanwhile, the Sisi government has imprisoned more than a thousand demonstrators, killing hundreds, and has created a cult of personality around Sisi that is impressive by almost any standard. In fact, I had a colleague there who had been to North Korea on a couple of occasions before, and he said what he saw in Cairo reminded him of nothing so much as the cult of personality around the Kim family in North Korea. This is our new ally, one who has received extensive praise in the uh, Republican presidential debates as a good friend of the United States. I think the point that we make here, and certainly with respect to the Saudi royal family and uh, its record of beheading uh, critics, and with the new Sisi dictatorship, is the United States has no need for friends like that, and we certainly should not want friends like that. 
No decent democratic country should. Thank you. Thank you, Malou and Ted. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce our two distinguished commentators. Uh, Jacob Heilbrunn is editor of The National Interest, the newest edition of which arrived yesterday. I should point out it includes a lead essay uh, by Jacob, as well as an article by Ted Carpenter that draws on some of the themes from Perilous Partners. Check it out. So you might recognize that fellow on the cover, for those of you. <laughs> Mouth wide open. Anyway, um, it's a great picture. Uh, Jacob has written for a number of other publications, including Commentary, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, etc. cetera. Uh, the Chicago Tribune called his 2007 book, They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, a fast-paced, edgy profile of the intellectuals whose views about Islam in the Middle East came to dominate foreign policy after 9-11. Uh, another reviewer praised Halbrun for adroitly surveying the movement's history from the Trotskyist alcoves of the city college cafeteria up to the present day. That's they knew they were right. Uh, Jacob was a Japan Society Fellow in 1998. In, 19, in uh, 2007, he won the IJP's George F. Kennan Commentary Award for his article, Ami Go Home. He is a graduate of Oberlin College. And our second commentator today is Andrew J. Basevich, Senior Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University and a former directory, director of BU's Center for International Relations. He previously taught at Johns Hopkins University and at West Point, where he graduated in 1969. He holds a PhD in American diplomatic history from Princeton. Uh, with the U.S. Army, uh, Andrew served during the Vietnam War and held posts in Germany and the Persian Gulf. He retired as a colonel uh, in the early 1990s. He's the author of a number of books, including Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, and The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War. He's written for a number of publications as well, including the Atlantic Foreign Affairs and the New York Times, and he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And I learned just today uh, that Andrew has a new book coming out in April, America's War for the Greater Middle East, uh, and I look forward to welcoming him again to Cato to talk about that. But first, Jacob. Uh, please join, please at the podium. Well, I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak here and uh, had the pleasure and privilege of publishing Ted's article in our new issue as Chris just mentioned. Uh, as a congenital contrarian, I found myself listening to the presentations and trying to figure out what were the weak points. And it, was, it struck me that the, uh, the emphasis on moralism I found quite fascinating in uh, both presentations because I myself came from a uh, more neoconservative background initially as, as, a, as a, a child and student and then working at uh, both the National Interest and the New Republic magazine. And one of the dominant themes back then was an emphasis on moral, moralism and human rights. Now it expressed itself in a diametrically opposed manner to that which Ted has outlined today. There, it was uh, fused with a 
reliance, belief, wish fulfillment, if, if you like, that if in many situations, if only enough American military power is employed, that you can uh, arrive at a desired outcome in, uh, in a number of countries, whether it's the Balkans, whether it is uh, the Middle East. And we've seen the consequences of what occurred there. The opposing worldview uh, is realism, which argues for prudence and restraint in foreign policy. And realism, if you look at the hardcore advocates, and there are different forms of realism, obviously, but you look at the hardcore advocates, whether it's Kissinger or, or John Mearsheimer, tend to uh, discount the importance of human rights. And I think it would be fair to say that Kissinger even looked at it with uh, some disdain when, when he was in office. And uh, it wasn't simply directed toward Bangladesh. It was also the whole thrust of, of uh, Senator Henry Jackson pushing human rights uh, as, as an agenda against the Soviet Union. So I guess I, I'm, I find it fascinating that uh, Ted is, is attempting, which comes out a little bit towards the end of the article he wrote for us, and I haven't read the whole book, so I assume it's also there where he takes issue with Kissinger and says that this uh, starkly realist approach is insufficient in, uh, in American foreign policy. But I still think that even there, there's, there is still a bit of a uh, disjunction in the presentation that I, I would like to try and, um, and flesh out a little bit, which is that uh, Ted, on the one hand, was very dismissive of uh, the demonization of, of Vladimir Putin and others, which does occur. Uh, they, they, they are inflated into, uh, into Hitler's, as we saw Hillary Clinton a few months ago compared the annexation of uh, Crimea to Hitler marching into the Sudetenland. But I would also ask Ted, if you have this, this moralistic view of, of foreign policy and you're drawing a pretty firm line against working with dictators or, or uh, authoritarian leaders abroad, would that also apply to Vladimir Putin, or would you would you would you take a different stance there? I'm curious about that. Um, the second point that I would just like to pursue briefly, and I guess this is uh, somewhat a defense of traditional realism, is let's flash back to 1979 and the Shah of Iran. Was I? I Understandably, you know, the historical consensus is that it was a mistake for the United States uh, and the British to, uh, to intervene in, in Iran in 1953, and that uh, we should not have been uh, so avid in supporting the Shah of Iran that it led to this authoritarian regime. But is the counter argument that if we go back to 1979, that in fact the Shah of Iran's 
country looks Edenic next to what came afterwards in terms of the human toll. So was the mistake that Jimmy Carter made, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I think Brzezinski was pushing for a tougher line. Is the mistake that Carter made not to just go in there and back the Shah all out and uh, crush the, uh, the uprising that took place in 1979. So is there, in fact, a case today for supporting uh, Egypt when you look at what's happening with ISIS? You know, there's always going to be the argument, better the devil you know than the one you don't. And uh, so I'm curious how both of you would address that. Because I think someone like uh, Kissinger or other critics might say that, you know, this is all fine in the abstract, but when you deal with the actual messy world of foreign policy, you don't really have the luxury of, uh, of defining your, your friends and partners as, as cleanly as you would like. So those are the uh, two points I would be curious to hear you address. Thank you, Jake. <clears throat> Well, thank you very much. Now, I, uh, I blurbed uh, Perilous Partners, so I can't say anything bad about the book. <laughs> uh, and don't, don't intend to take uh, exception with the comments that uh, Malou and Ted have made. What I will do instead is to make uh, brief comments that in some way or another, I hope, sort of spin off uh, from the book and from your presentation. So uh, sort of three related questions. I mean, why does this pattern of sacrificing values to make common cause with unsavory dictators persist? Why, therefore, the inability to see and to appreciate the cost that, 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 are, that are we sustain because of this pattern of hypocrisy? Uh, and, or, or really, more simply still, why do we keep doing stupid things? And I'll offer four explanations very, very briefly. Uh, which I view as uh, mutually uh, reinforcing. And the first, I think, is uh, relates to the pernicious, the deeply pernicious uh, impact of the national security apparatus, which is so deeply invested in maintaining the broader status quo of U.S. national security Policy. I refer to national security apparatus. I'm, I'm certainly in, including the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies, elements of the military-industrial uh, complex, certain think tanks, albeit not this one, uh, and even some uh, academic programs. I mean, for all of them, and forgive me for being cynical, uh, but there is money to be made. There are careers to be advanced. There are votes to be won. And those very practical and immediate considerations, I think, constitute uh, imprison uh, those who work within the national security apparatus and deny them sort of the uh, capacity uh, to see clearly and confront uh, where we have gone wrong. Second uh, explanation, maybe it overlaps with the first, but what I see is this uh, astonishing uh, absence of imagination at the upper levels of what we call our, our policy elite, where it seems to me people simply accept as given 
the absence of any alternative choices. I mean, I guess it's Ted who mentioned the Marcos thing, and, and the national security uh, state was absolutely committed to the notion that there was no alternative to supporting the Philippines and, and by extension, supporting Marcos. Uh, and, and the sort of the ultimate explanation for that was that there was no way that we could possibly sustain our commitments to the Asia Pacific region uh, if we didn't have access to Subic Bay and Clark Air Force Base, which were then demolished uh, by what was it, a volcano eruption or a, or a storm, at which time the Pentagon immediately concluded that they were utterly redundant and we could get along just fine uh, without Subic and, and, and Clark. So there's this absence of imagination. And I have to say, uh, I, I saw this in spades uh, last week when Secretary of Defense uh, Ashton Carter uh, was making an explanation for why it's now become necessary to uh, continue uh, the uh, uh, Afghanistan war that was begun by the Bush administration in 2001, inherited by the Obama administration uh, when it came into office, and now will continue uh, into the presidency of whoever it is uh, that succeeds uh, President Obama. And, and Secretary Carter said, well, we can't. We can't leave Afghanistan. And I have to say, it was one of those quotes that sort of made my head snap back. What do you mean we can't? Are we not the most powerful country in the whole world? Is Afghanistan not, relatively speaking, not meaning to offend any Afghans in the room, relatively peripheral in terms of the larger sort of geopolitical structure? How can it be that we can't leave Afghanistan? And I, I think this is, this is an, an example of this paralysis and absence of imagination that uh, uh, also helps to explain why we keep doing stupid things. Third point is the disengagement of the American people. I mean, we live at a time uh, where few Americans actually perceive themselves as having any substantive, immediate stake in U.S. foreign policy. I've written about this. I think part of it has to do with the abandonment of the tradition of the citizen soldier and the embrace of uh, the all-volunteer all, all uh, professional uh, military. But there's also an absence of awareness about the, the fiscal or economic, uh, uh, the opportunity costs that stem from uh, failed and misguided policies. So why, why does the national security state get away with its commitment to the status quo? Why do we have people like Secretary Carter who are utter, so utterly lacking in imagination? It's in part because the American people let them all get away with it. And that's a pretty sad commentary on our democracy. Last point, and to me, in a sense, the overarching point is the persistence of a, of a, of a narrative of history and in particular, a narrative of the 20th century that, 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 that uh, sees the, that element of the past uh, as a story of how the world was saved through the exercise of American global leadership. Now, that narrative, in my judgment, is at, at best uh, simplistic. Uh, uh, it is uh, misleading. And quite frankly, if you want, in a sense, the ultimate explanation for why we do stupid things, it may well be our inability to think clearly and critically about the reality 
of world history in the 20th century and American history. So some of the, some of the issues that Malou was, no offense, nothing you said came as a surprise <laughs> in the sense that the, uh, the, the coup overthrowing the government of, of Guatemala mostly on behalf of the United Fruit Company, albeit informed to some degree by an excessive concern about the possibility of communist uh, incursions into Central America. Why would we care? Because we did at the time. I mean, as, 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 as that uh, uh, episode has vanished from our common understanding of 20th century history, our common understanding of 20th century history is how the Anglo-Americans joined together Roosevelt and Churchill, Soviets are marginalized in this thing, uh, to, to, to liberate uh, the world from in its darkest hour, that then leading to yet another Anglo-American partner, partnership in order to defeat the threat posed by the Soviet Union. I'm being sarcastic in the way I describe it. Uh, but I'm not sarcastic when I say that that's the narrative that is omnipresent in our politics, is reiterated over and over again by our political leaders, is reinforced by our popular culture, and makes it therefore exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to view the past with the sort of realistic, pragmatic, critical eye that would make it possible for us to identify some alternatives and therefore make us less stupid. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy, and thank you, Jacob. Um, I think I'm going to exercise the moderator's privilege before I get to all of you, and you've been very patient. But uh, I, I want to pick up on something that, that Jacob said. Um, this is a question I've had dancing around in my head. I've, I've read, uh, as you both know, this manuscript a couple times over and have learned a lot in the process. But I wonder, from your perspective, what is the worst case? Now, the worst case combines the venality and, and just sheer kind of uh, 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 low, lowness, I'm, I'm struggling for the appropriate adjective here, of one of our perilous partners relative to the small to non-existent benefits that we derived from the alliance, right? So, so we can think of an instance where uh, was the Shah worth it relative to the alternatives? Was uh, uh, Sisi worth it relative to Morsi or, or Mubarak relative to, to Morsi, re relative to Sisi? But to Morsi, <laughs> what, I, what I said. Uh, but what it really comes down to is this rampant threat exaggeration, the sense that every single one of these cases was essential to US national security. If this tiny country, if this distant place were to change leaders, and the, the leader we were replacing it with was so clearly superior to the one that, that came before, and that, if we didn't engineer this, if we didn't hold on to this, everything would fall apart. So I'm, I'm curious, when you think through this process, and there are how many cases in the book? I should know this. 15, 14, 15? Uh, about 14, about 14. With, uh, different countries. Right. Yeah. In your opinion, which one is the absolute worst that combines the, the least benefit for the, for the most harm to our, to our reputation? 
I would say one that was very briefly touched on would be uh, Jean-Claude and Francois Duvalier in Haiti. That is an example of, of grotesque rapaciousness of a country that was of no vital security interest to the United States, and yet we see time and time again throughout the decades of just the utter and brutal repression of the Haitian people. Okay. Uh, I would say probably uh, Joseph Mobutu, Mobutu Sese Seko, the leader of Zaire, now Democratic Republic of the Congo, where the U.S. had at most peripheral interests at stake in sub-Saharan Africa, economically uh, very limited stakes. Strategically, uh, we had stakes largely because we exaggerated the role of the Soviet Union, something that U.S. officials even conceded in retrospect, that they saw everything through the prism of the Cold War rivalry with the USSR. And it led us to back a, an utterly corrupt, brutal tyrant that murdered political opponents um, and looted his country to the tune of billions of dollars. He literally became one of the wealthiest people in the world, leading one of the most impoverished countries in the world. And when you take into consideration the very limited U.S. interests at stake and the moral compromise, the extent of the moral compromise to support his rule for better than three decades, I think that one stands out to me as certainly one of the worst, if not the worst. Did either of you want to pick up on anything that uh, either Jacob or, or Andy <clears throat> said? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, just a brief comment uh, with regard to uh, Andy's point about vested interests. And this is something I think that we really need to focus on in uh, examining foreign policy debates, because these are not just academic debates or debates uh, on the highest level of principle, there are a lot of interests at stake. And uh, that pro-communist President Dwight Eisenhower uh, aptly pointed that out in his farewell address in 1961 when he described the military-industrial complex and how that was distorting uh, the consideration of U.S. foreign and military policy. And interestingly enough, Eisenhower's original formulation of the military-industrial complex was the military-industrial-congressional complex. And I think that more accurately captures the dynamic that we face that has so distorted the uh, defense and foreign policy debates in the United States over the decades and it has steadily gotten worse. The point that Jacob made about um, the often difficult decisions that are made, for example, 1979 with the Shaw, and given what came afterwards, uh, would the United States have been justified in increasingly increasing its backing of the Shaw? Um, a couple of things with regard to that. First of all, one of the reasons that the post-Shaw regime was so religious-oriented is that the Shaw devoted most of his efforts to suppressing secular dissidents. Now, part of that was simply uh, 
a basic dynamic. If you held an anti-regime meeting in a cafe, everybody gets arrested in the cafe, gets shut down. If you hold an anti-regime meeting in a mosque, the task for the Shah's security forces, much more difficult. So what you had was the ever greater weakness of the secular opposition to the Shah's rule and the increasing role played by religious zealots. So the Shah, in many ways, was his own worst enemy. And to what extent would we have had to back the Shah, given the sentiment in Iran in 1979? Uh, I think it would have taken a massive military intervention by the United States to keep the Shah in power. And that is something that, as bad as the following regime was, I think would have entangled us in a way that would have been extraordinarily negative. Um, one of the things I think we have to avoid, and we're seeing this now with respect to Egypt, is the assumption that the only choices are pro-American authoritarian clients or stark enemies. In some cases, that may be true, but we have to be very careful not to just assume that. The Philippines example was one that uh, where you see this assumption in the 1980s, right up to the time of the People's Revolution uh, under Corazon Aquino in 1986. The Heritage Foundation, for example, put out several studies during the 1980s assuring us that the only alternative to Marcos was a communist takeover of the Philippines that would uh, basically make Pol Pot in Cambodia look mild by comparison. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case at all. So I think we ought to view those kinds of predictions at least with a certain amount of restraint, a certain amount of skepticism. That might be true in some cases, that the choices are really ugly, but one cannot just assume that we have no choice but to back a corrupt, friendly tyrant. Yes. Um, well, Jacob actually had this critique of, of Ted's uh, discussion and his article in the recent issue of uh, National Interest. It was the emphasis on moralism in his talk. Um, well, we see an emphasis on moralism in U.S. foreign policy, and I think because we're critiquing U.S. foreign policy, that's what we've seen. Not only do we revere and pay deference to our values, I mean, we claim to be the city on the hill. We claim ourselves to be exceptional because of our values. And I think that's usually what we, we've gone to to look at and critique U.S. foreign policy. This is true throughout the Cold War and to the present day. You see this from you know, Truman's State of the Union address talking about uh, American values and liberal principles uh, to the 2002 National Security Statement, the strategy of President Bush. And so we see this time and time again of U.S. focus on, on, on moralism and liberalism. If anything, we should be the city on the hill and sort of step back and lead by example. I don't really like the United States wagging a sanctimonious finger into the eyes of other of other regimes. I wish we actually did less of that and then was not complicit in so many crimes. All right, very good. Uh, we have time for, uh, for Q&A. Please uh, wait for the microphone for the benefit of those watching online. Uh, identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, one more thing, the, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, please phrase your question in the form 
of a question uh, here at the Cato Institute. I'll be listening for that, that lilting question mark at the end of your, uh, yes sir, over here. Hi, so I'm Jim Lowe and I wrote a book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. My claim to fame is that I've read more American history textbooks than any other living person. It was a near-death experience <laughs> and for high school. And I think that's related to particularly the, the points made by uh, Andrew Basevich. Uh, I may have pronounced your name wrong. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, it seems to me when I read these books that uh, they have this stupidest and shallowest form of American exceptionalism. Basically, it is that we are exceptionally nice, period. And if we ever <laughs> make a mistake, it's always with the best of intentions, but we just didn't fully understand the situation. And as soon as we did, then we pretty much tried to fix it. And so my question is, for any of you, um, I think that maybe we would end up with a more intelligent public that would get more involved the way Andrew wants us to, and correctly, uh, if they actually taught us some realism. But they, they shy way away from that. And I wonder what you think about that. <clears throat> Blame the historians? I have two historians on either end, plus me in the middle. So, so is it uh, the historian's fault? Well, I'd, I would blame the historians uh, in this sense. That is to say, blame the, the historical profession, uh, of which I am a very marginal uh, <laughs> member. Uh, in this sense, uh, and this is a broad brush comment, uh, since roughly the 1960s, uh, the profession of history, academic history, has moved in, in pretty powerful ways away from what people meant by history in an earlier age. Up to the 1960s, history meant political history, military history, diplomatic history. It's not that those sub-disciplines <clears throat> no longer exist on college campuses, but they've become substantially marginalized. They've, they, they're far lower in the hierarchy of what counts uh, and what's valued inside the, the profession. And what that what that means is that the narrative of political and diplomatic and military history that is offered to the public tends to be offered by uh, people who have some kind of a of of a of a of an axe to grind, or I should say, of some kind of a position to to support. Here, I'm pointing in particular to politicians or to historians who may well be exceedingly talented uh, as storytellers, but whose, and, and who sell a hell of a lot more books than I ever have, <laughs> but whose stories tend to affirm American exceptionalism, American triumphalism, a, a narrative of the 20th century as basically good news because we came out on top. So we blame historians, the professional historians, in the sense that, that de facto, they let the uh, portrayer, the, the, the falsifiers of history, if I may make that judgment, in a sense, get away with it. Because 
the professional historians tend to be far more preoccupied with issues related to gender and class and so on. I'm waving my hands, and that suggests that I'm being dismissive. I don't mean to be. Those are all certainly valued and valuable subjects, uh, but they have tended to shift the focus away from the things that inform our debate, at least about foreign policy. Dad, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, as a historian, I'll, I'll defend the profession to some extent. However, I admit that uh, any profession that, for example, considers Woodrow Wilson one of the near great presidents, oh. given the damage that he did to civil liberties in the United States and to the international system, we are still living with uh, problems that uh, he helped originate. Uh, a profession that... that gives him high marks, obviously has some major deficiencies. But I think for the, uh, the debasement of uh, foreign policy debates in the United States, I would, I would put greater emphasis on the news media in the United States and the terrible job that the media have done. Um, among other things, the demonization of selected foreign leaders – uh, the portrayal of complex struggles as nice uh, moralistic melodramas with an innocent victim, a pernicious, snidely whiplash-like aggressor, and then the United States as Dudley Do-Right of the Mounties coming to the rescue. You know, we've seen this narrative again and again and again. And it's frankly insulting to the intelligence of the American people, and it certainly debases the quality of the foreign policy Can I make debate. One quick yeah, sure, Jacob. I'll ahead. just make one quick point. This, this is not unique to the United States. It's just that we are somewhat of a latecomer. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was looking at one of my grandmother's children's books, and it was from the 19th century, and it was all about the demonization of uh, France over Alsace-Lorraine. <laughs> and it was, it was children's songs, and these were all filled with hatred of France. They were German uh, songs. And what Ted is describing is, in my view, nothing more than a form of American nationalism. Uh, uh, right here, sir, go ahead, right there. No. Go ahead. So what about 
Putin's perilous partners? Well, first of all, I would say that Putin is uh, pretty much a conventional leader of a, a great power uh, in decline, in, under duress. Uh, we need to remember that Syria is about 500 miles from the southern Russian border. Russia is going to be concerned about developments in the Middle East, and particularly the rise of Sunni radicalism. So I, th I think uh, what Putin has done is made, uh, developed a pragmatic alliance with uh, Iran and an attempt to prop up a beleaguered client in Assad. Uh, the Russian-Assad alliance goes back to the days of Bashar Assad's father uh, back in the, in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, I don't attribute that to uh, a malignant expansionist agenda. And I would put the same thing with regard to the Crimea issue. Uh, I find it amusing that a lot of Americans, and especially American conservatives, seem to regard the arbitrary decision of the General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchov, uh, with reverence. This is when Khrushchev in 1954 transferred ownership of Crimea from Russia to Ukraine, when Crimea had been part of Russia since 1782. Now, nobody knows exactly why Khrushchev did this, uh, maybe to assuage his guilt uh, from his days when he was the head of the Ukrainian Communist Party, or maybe he was just drunk. Nobody, <laughs> nobody really knows. But the Russians were unhappy about this when the Soviet Union dissolved, and all of a sudden a key, key strategic locale was suddenly now in, uh, under the jurisdiction of a foreign country. Uh, again, this is, this is different from the kind of malignant global expansionism that we saw with with uh, communism during the, during the Soviet era, uh, Putin is not a nice person. I think we need to have a limited relationship with him. But I don't think anybody's talking about an intimate alliance between the United States and Putin's Russia. So there, there's a difference between working with an authoritarian government for limited, defined purposes, and crawling into bed with an authoritarian regime, like the way we do, for example, with the Saudi royal family. Um, uh, right here? Is that, we got a working mic now? Go ahead. Yeah, um, my name's Stephen Keat. Uh, I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. Uh, you were speaking uh, particularly in terms of state actors or relationships with different governments around the world. What about, um, in particular, international terrorists? And putting aside the question of whether or not we have taken actions in the past that have caused terrorists to target the United States, the fact that there are terrorist groups trying to get at us today, I'd appreciate if you'd address how you feel we should go about doing that and whether or not that is something that would justify alliances with leaders that you find unsavory. Thank you. Ted, thanks you for that question, and it was not planted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, again, there may be occasions where a limited working relationship with an authoritarian regime to meet a terrorist threat uh, is justified. However, we have to be very, very careful that backing such regimes uh, enthusiastically can help create additional terrorists. Uh, also, I think we need to acknowledge that some of the military actions the United States has taken um, may be feeding terrorism. Um, even our much-touted use of drones, which was designed quite understandably to limit the prospect of U.S. casualties encountering terrorism, uh, I think the collateral damage, that is, innocent civilian casualties, have greatly exceeded what the original estimates were. We had a, a recent report out that uh, over 200 people killed in drone strikes, recent drone strikes, only 35 were designated targets, people that we were really after. Well, you have to ask, what is the reaction of the families and friends of the other 170 innocent people who were killed by drone strikes. Have we now turned all of those friends and extended family members into enemies of the United States, people who will now support terrorist actions against the U.S.? This is a very complex topic, and it's one I think we have to think through very, very carefully about our relationship with authoritarian allies, but also the very military strategies that we're using to counter terrorism. Right. I think that'd be a, that's, a, in fact, a very important question. It's one that sort of gets to the heart of our relationships with a lot of the uh, states in the Muslim world, uh, Egypt in particular. In fact, if you look at the jihadist literature, you find that the the torture at Egyptian detention facilities are often blamed for turning run-of-the-mill jihadists to really hardcore Islamic extremists. So you have, on the one hand, an Egypt that supports us and helps us in terms of, you know, mass interrogation or perhaps, you know, it actually enhanced, uh, we saw this enhanced after 9-11 with the construction of a worldwide torture regime of extraordinary rendition. And so it helps us in some respects, but then it also harms and facilitates the rise of terrorism and really uh, creates a moral force behind it. I think that's sort of the intricacy and the difficulty that Ted laid out. Um, and just back to the previous question about Putin and Syria, um, we talk about the understanding these countries in their proper historical context. I think we really do give a lot of short shrift to the fact that Syria is and was for a long time a client state of the Soviet Union. And what we saw in the late 1950s after a series of botched U.S. and British coups is Syria and Egypt joined together into the UAR, the United Arab Republic, and shift more firmly into the Soviet camp. Um, so this is a long-standing client state of the Russians. This is not just, as Ted pointed out, uh, an attempt for Putin to just expand his influence across the world. Uh, in the back there, and then I'll get uh, one over here. Uh, Will Ruger, the Charles Koch Institute. Uh, just a question, Ted. Uh, what, what would a uh, Secretary of State Carpenter do in terms of winding down our most perilous partnerships today? I mean, what are the ones that are most threatening to the interests of the United States that you've identified uh, relative to the value they give us? I think uh, the first one I would alter would be the relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know, it's ironic, uh, back in the uh, early years of this, uh, the 21st century, 
it was conventional wisdom that Iran and Saddam Hussein's Iraq were the countries that were doing the most damage to legitimate American interests, legitimate American security interests. But if you looked at the actual conduct, it was Pakistan and Saudi Arabia that were doing the most damage. The Saudis, especially with the funding of the Wahhabi clergy and its outreach program, the creation of madrasas in Pakistan and other countries, Afghanistan, um, that were spreading virulent anti-U.S., anti-Western values to a whole new generation of people in the Muslim world. Um, this is a country that has repeatedly undermined legitimate American security interests. It was no accident that 16 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi nationals. And I think all of us would love to know what's in those 28 pages that remain top secret from the 9-11 report. The suspicion is, and I think is well-founded suspicion, that it implicates members of the Saudi royal family in al-Qaeda's activities and specifically terrorist plots. This is an ally that I would uh, move toward a, uh, an arm's length relationship immediately. And I think uh, that's something that is, that is long overdue. There are certainly other countries that we ought to move to a much more restrained arm's length relationship as well, but that ought to be at the top of the list. Let me state for the record of those uh, 28 pages, uh, Malou had wanted to include a photograph of one of the 28 pages in our small uh, set of photographs in the book. I overruled her, but again, her interests were in the right place. But just so you know, those 28 pages, there's really nothing to see. And of course, that's the whole point. So to her credit, she, it was, tried, it was she, tried, to get in there. she tried to get in there. I put the kibosh on that. So You literally see 28 pages, and it's just black marker <laughs> on every single one of these pages. That must be really important in there. Uh, a, a question in the back there on the left-hand side? Yeah? You guys jump in, too, by the way. You, these guys are being uncharacteristic. <laughs> well, kind of restrained. You guys need I, to be the loyal opposition here. Ted Anderson, this is um, John Henry, the committee for the Republic. Um, I'm kind of impressed by how much you are inside the Wilsonian narrative um, of good guys and bad guys and um, the is 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 I think the the debate between realism and and moralism is really a inside baseball thing inside the Wilsonian narrative. Have you really considered um, getting out of uh, that whole um, paradigm and thinking about what we did the first until the late nineteenth century, just getting rich, what the Chinese are doing that the, the real choice is between getting rich or wanting to tell people what to do. And whether you want to tell people what to do by uh, sp spreading democracy or whether, in your case, um, um, wanting to disassociate with, with governments that don't meet um, your particular ideals. Isn't that the real, have you considered that? Um, I just haven't heard any discussion. Ted, Ted, you're being accused of being a Wilsonian, which I'm sure oh. is uh, <laughs> the ultimate insult. Uh, no end. 
<clears throat> yeah, that could that could lead to a duel. Uh, <laughs> uh, given my ten paces. You know, I, I have long considered Woodrow Wilson the most evil American president we, we ever had. Um, so, yeah, being accused of any sympathy with, with Wilsonianism uh, is deeply painful. Um, I, I think that we ought to mute the notion of the, the tension, automatic tension between moral values and national interests and try to blend those as much as possible. But that does require a restrained foreign policy. And I think, interestingly, Thomas Jefferson put it the best, that the policy of the United States ought to be peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. That means the United States, very much as an independent actor, a rigorous definition of its own essential interests that it's willing to pursue and defend, but not attempting to micromanage world affairs. And we have fallen into that trap. The point that Andy made earlier about the involvement in Afghanistan and how this becomes a vested interest. Now we can't leave Afghanistan in 2016. What about 2026, 2036, 2056? If our policy is based on making congenitally misgoverned societies somehow much, much better, we are going to be entangled in country after country after country, conflict after conflict after conflict indefinitely. What we call for is a policy of restraint, one that is consistent with fundamental American values and again, has a much more restrictive, restrained definition of essential American interests, things for which we are willing to use military force. But again, that needs to be the great exception, not the routine. It has become the routine. I think uh, Andy's, Andy's point can be uh, drawn out a little bit, which is that for the Republican Party, uh, going on the attack on foreign policy has been a good brand. It has sold very well. Um, and, you know, both parties have, the Democrats used to do this more. They, you had Kennedy accusing Eisenhower of being weak. The way to project yourself in the American system, clearly, and, and the Republican Party has embraced this wholeheartedly now in, in trying to portray Obama as Jimmy Carter or worse. It's, it's sort of a playbook that they go to over and over again. I'm not convinced that it will work in this election cycle, but I do think it explains why Obama is not leaving Afghanistan or sticking to his plan. He's already defied the national security establishment in Syria. I mean, absent Obama, we'd be bombing there. We'd be, who knows what we'd be doing. Um, and there, or we would have tried to enforce a no-fly zone. I think most of the Republican candidates just came out for a no-fly zone. So for the GOP, it's very clear what the, what the strategy is. And Hillary Clinton wants to insulate herself. So she's not going to uh, deviate one iota 
on uh, pursuing a hawkish foreign policy, at least during the run-up to the election. So I think, you know, as long as it sells to the American public, or as long as it's perceived as selling, it, uh, we are stuck on automatic pilot. I think it would take, for the GOP, I presume a crushing defeat in the upcoming presidential election might be enough to engender a new debate. Donald Trump has taken a two-by-four in going after Jeb Bush and uh, George W. Bush. And he, you know, he's done this on taxes too, but it's not, the, the party is still pretty resistant to, uh, to any debate on these issues. Um, I also wanted, I'd be, I was thinking I'd be remiss if I did not congratulate Ted and Malou on their title. It, it could potentially sell very well on Amazon if you drop this stuff about American foreign policy and make it sound like a relationship. <laughs> that was not their intention, I assure you. The original, um, the original any, title any, was... Malou, was, do you have anything else to The add? original title was Dubious Partners. Yeah, right, Dubious Partners, dubious. So, which also could be a, yeah. a, a bad, a bad uh, romance news. novel. All right, I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, please join me in thanking uh, Ted and Malou and Andy and Jacob.